0: Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the MBE Enterprise Podcast, where we talk about money, business, and entrepreneurship with some of the brightest minds I know. Today, I am joined by a mechanical engineering student and co-founder of Gray Green, Mason Safnarsky Mason, how are we doing tonight, man? I'm doing well. Very happy to be here tonight. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to have you, Mason. And I'm really excited to talk a little bit more about maybe kind of a little bit of an Intricate topic here on the engineering side of things. You're obviously a smart guy, mechanical engineering student at Duke University. Um, Mason, tell me a little bit more about the company that actually led us to meeting, which was Gray Green.
1: Yeah, so Gray Green has been definitely a journey, to say the least. Um, To date, we've we've really worked on the engineering of it all for the past two years or so. So one of my co-founders, Josie, another student at Duke, she's a freshman right now. We met in a pre-college course about human-centered design and the human-centered de- uh, engineering process, uh, also called HCD. It's basically an alternative approach to engineering which emphasizes human factors. And I guess from an origin story for the whole idea and for the whole product, uh, we met in that class, which was generally focused on human-centered design in the healthcare industry. Um, so we learned about you know health inequities and inequities in the technology landscape regarding to healthcare. At its most simplest form, you know, cancer treatment could be one of them. Um, Countries that have the technology to invent, you know, where are the actual research labs and where is that research going, the technology is going. Those customers are going to have the research, the innovation to get better. People that don't have those resources are not. And the divide is going to grow even further. So Josie and I met and we had the idea. We, We were both interested in the field of agriculture, in the field of water resource management and natural resources. And we said, okay, well, how does this problem exist outside of healthcare? So we really thought a whole lot about it and figured out on a couple of key points, which are one, agriculture. Uh, we looked at how agriculture relates to this whole technology, technology inequity landscape. And then we combined that with water resource management, looking at practices that are already being done specifically in low income, water scarce countries we kind of combined the two ideas and eventually came up with a product that recycles gray water for hydroponic agriculture. So that's kind of everything in a nutshell. Um, Ideation process took a very long time. Um, And then product design, I'd say was a little bit easier just because of how much time went into thinking about it. But yeah, that, that was kind of the whole idea.
0: Mason, let's dig in a little bit more. You talk about recycling gray water for agriculture. Um, could you give us a little more insight into kind of what that means and then also maybe describing the the product a little bit more to, to people who don't necessarily know anything about the area you're talking about?
1: Yeah. So in water resource management, there are a few techniques, uh, a few basic techniques or advanced techniques, however you want to make them. That allow you to to manage water, uh, gray water recycling is certainly one of them, especially in low income countries or water scarce countries. Essentially, what it is is when you wash your hands or your clothes or your food. Let's take laundry for example. You know, generally you run it through a washing machine. And if you've ever hand washed your clothes, you know if you get a bunch of dirty clothes, put some water in a bucket, wash, take the clothes out. The water is gross. Um, so that's that's essentially the gray water. Now, recycling that would be exactly what you know, we think recycling is. We reuse it, we purify it of its contaminants and make a better use of it. In terms of how that manifests itself to the actual gray-green product, we combine that with hydroponic agriculture, which is kind of this newer type of agriculture that's out there. Um, not necessarily new, but definitely new in terms of the rapidity with, which it's taking off in the past five years or so. And There's a whole nother rabbit hole you can go down with the success of startups in that space. But um, it essentially uses water to grow plants instead of soil. Uh, Soil is a scarce resource. Climate change, making it drier, more scarce, not as efficient growing medium. Water based agriculture actually uses significantly less water uh, than soil based agriculture think it it's over like 60% less water is consumed because plants are just intaking the water that they need and just the nutrients they need as opposed to soil, which can intake water on top of the plant intaking water. So those are the two kind of applications and technologies, if you want to call them independently. The main issue with them right now is that they're just both super expensive. You know, they exist here in the United States such wide scales they can be used very efficiently in terms of the water recycling water treatment process or industrial commercial agriculture landscape but in terms of a small scale application they're inefficient and they don't exist and i guess another tangent to gray water recycling in some of the research that we did for end user populations or potential end user populations we found that yes gray water recycling might be used in some medium and we might expect that to be the case but Most of the time, the water is just not recycled. That actually can be dumped right onto plants, which is not healthy. That can introduce bacteria, E. coli, um, bad diseases. And even if it is filtered, it might require some very expensive chemical filter, or it could just be a very, um, time consuming
0: process. So, yeah. So if you were going to describe to us now the, the product from the engineering side that you built to kind of, um tackle this issue that you, that you ran into. How would you kind of describe that? Like it's physical nature and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. So the device it's hard to explain without a picture it might help, but um, essentially what it is, it's picture a sink of some sort. So there's a bowl, there's a giant bowl on the top. There's this PVC t- tube that comes down from the bowl and splits off into four other PVC tubes. It's about. Mm, three feet tall, but that can vary. Uh, That's based off the the human factors. We can vary the, the height of the actual device. Essentially what it does is, again, it recycles gray water for hydroponic agriculture. So first users would wash their hands, clothes, or food in the available wash basin at the top of this whole unit, this kind of plastic bowl. You'd wash your hands, clothes, or food. Gray water or dirty water would get generated from that hand washing or washing process. And then traditionally it'd be like, okay, well, we have water, what do we do now? You could either throw that on your plants, introduce E. coli or other bacteria, or you could just dump it out. So we said, well, what if we actually found an efficient way to recycle that? And efficient, efficient way to recycle all of that, not just some of it. Way in which we did that was once the gray water is produced, you open a valve which allows water, the contaminated water, to filter down an organic filter column which is essentially just a column of rock, sand, and other natural materials, which we verified and tested, can filter and return gray water to tap water pH levels. Once the water is filtered to tap water, it would be spiked with a nutrient solution and then be dispersed to each of four, we call them hydroponic dispersion tubes. Really, they're just PVC tubes with holes in them, which have hydroponic planters. So the idea here is that over time, using a method of hydroponics called the Kratky method, uh, which is essentially just non-electricity, um, no electrical uh, con- consumption-based method of of growing plants, um, they would grow over time and take the water that they need. And then excess water could be reused over and over and over in the system, um, which can efficiently recycle water. So yeah, device is about two and a half three feet tall, can adjust, and it's designed to be fully modular, disassembled, easily assembled, um, and 80 to 100% more cost-effective than current market solutions.
0: Would this be something that you would see um, down the road eventually being used in other industries uh, aside from just agriculture? Um, I'm sure that's kind of the focus that you guys are targeting on right away, and I'm sure that rightfully so. You would have all your attention directed towards that area but down the road could you see you know this as a as an option for um you know any multiple other industries like all water using industries is there anything significant that would limit it to just agriculture
1: that's an interesting point i would say if you look at trends recently i think we've realized how important it is to use this two birds with one stone mentality and how that exists with gray green is that you're tackling gray water recycling and you're using that for hydroponic agriculture um i guess a similar analogy here would immediately i think of solar panels you know we're we're harvesting the sun to produce energy maybe that's a terrible analogy but kind of this two birds in one stone mentality with engineering um so in terms of particular industries, immediately I can't think of of many. I would say right now the focus is agriculture. But the idea of yeah applying that to other industries, I would say it could definitely be used in some sort of idealistic, maybe even utopian style method of, of water treatment across an entire city or particular condensed region um, in terms of recycling municipal water. And then turning that into some sort of agricultural product. Um, I could definitely see that being some larger scale. I'm sure that's theoretically out there. I'm sure it's there's a lot of engineering challenges, but I don't see any limiting factors that would that would prevent it. But yeah, it's a definitely good thought experiment there. <laughs>
0: that That is kind of where I was going that that kind of municipal water supply idea, and just how that would tie in. You also brought up actually exactly what I was going to follow that up with, which was the engineering challenges. What would you say um were the largest challenges that you faced in the kind of process of you mentioned before we started recording that it has a patent um it is you know patented this this technology that you've created and you and your co-founder have created what were the biggest engineering challenges you had to get over?
1: So a lot of challenges. Um, biggest challenges, I think this is going to be the case whenever you're working in a landscape that is apparently novel. And I would say, based off the diligence that we performed on existing technologies that are out there, in terms of its pure application, it seems pretty new. Um, that's why, why we applied for the patent. So I'd say the biggest challenge is really... And it is a fundamental process in engineering, but I don't think we realize how difficult it is until we start doing it, is taking the pros and cons of existing inventions and meaningfully learning from that. I think it's easy to look at past inventions and say, oh, this looks cool, or this functions well, or this has this property, but not this property. And, you know, there's ways to make, you know, there's things like pew scoring matrices and all these decision-making processes. But at the end of the day, it is kind of this gut check of what you think is going to work and what you don't think is going to work. And sometimes having that gut check is actually the hardest part. So diving into a landscape that's new, you know, combining gray water for hydroponic agriculture, or even looking in a lesser explored application of hydroponic agriculture, which is the cracky method, again, that non-electricity form of hydroponics. That's difficult because there's not a lot of references that you can use. There wasn't a whole lot of research papers that we could look to and say, oh, this is actually meaningful information, or this is just some random experiment that was ran in 1990 that did nothing. Um, So figuring out what can actually help you and making decisions is is always going to be the hardest part. But I say that's magnified when it's a when it's a definitely new project. So, yeah,
0: you alluded to the intuitive nature of dealing with something that's it's new um that's something that that how do you balance how do you go about um the decision making process and as far as balancing kind of the data that you that you are receiving or maybe that you don't even have sometimes and kind of how you're implementing your intuition and how you're kind of making those decisions that are primarily intuitively based at times so is there thought processes that go through your head or certain steps that you'll take in your kind of decision-making process when deciding whether to implement this or that?
1: That's a good question. I would say definitely a lot of it comes with experience. You know, I'm a student, I'm a bachelor student, so it's, I'm not claiming to know a whole lot in terms of the engineering design process. But like you said, a lot of it is intuition. I'd say, you know, people describe humans as just one giant supercomputer and i think that's absolutely true but there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the subconscious that guides the decisions that we make of course we can have all this data all these scoring matrices for how to make decisions or all these numbers and they can guide us to a certain extent and in terms of balance i would really once again say it's kind of that gut check that that pushes you over the edge in terms of decisions and there's also guidelines that you have to layout early on, which can guide your projects. At the end of the day, every project is going to have some fundamental goals. That's why it's important to also generate need statements. You know, when you get lost in this whole process of ideation or design or um, iteration, you always have to look back and say, okay, well, why was I here in the first place? That's why I think when I'm thinking of new ideas or new projects in whatever landscape that is, whether that's in engineering or not, I always think about, Or I even write down just this need statement, a one to two sentence phrase, this is what I need at the end of the day. That's a general problem solving tip that I think really helps. And I think when you get caught in the weeds of everything, all the design, looking back at a simple statement like that can put put it all back into perspective. So at its very foundation, you have to know what you needed in the first place.
0: I think that ties in well to kind of the general idea of, you know, knowing the problem that you're trying to solve as well, right? It's kind of, go, they go hand in hand, knowing what you need to do, knowing the the original problem, I know that gets brought up a lot and uh, the ideation process is kind of, a lot of people will think, beginning entrepreneurs um, don't maybe always think about the problem side of things. They want to create a business and then they struggle in the ideation process of like, what business do I create or what, what's something and always starting with the problem is, is pivotal and humans in general are pretty good at, you know, evolutionarily, we're pretty good at finding problems, right? That's kind of what we're wired to do. So kind of really looking at things from that regard and then being like, okay, here's a list of problems. This is how I will approach solving them as opposed to just looking for the solution right away or looking at what you're going to build right away, but actually getting down to the nitty gritty of the problem itself. And then also, I'm sure something down the road will be like customer feedback, right? And implementing that customer feedback to tell you kind of where you need to pivot or which route you need to take, as opposed to trying to decide it all on your own. And that's another thing that you know is balanced with intuition is also the feedback and the data points that you receive down the road as well. Um, switching gears off the engineering side a little bit here, Mason, the business side of things, your co-founder, Josie, I believe you said was her name, is she um, a co-founder like also in engineering to help you tackle those issues or more of the business side?
1: Yeah. So she's engineering student right now as well. uh, Freshman. Um, So yeah, we're, we're both engineers. Uh, I think we've thought about this a lot. I think the reason I'm studying it is because it gives a framework for other industries. In my opinion, Um, you don't have to do just exclusively engineering kind of the ability to think and, approaches to solving problems uh can take you a lot of different places so i'd say you know we have a lot to learn about the business side of things um and that's not always something a degree can do so a lot of legwork on our own that's something we're working on now um in terms of getting a business development for Grey green's sake um so yeah that's something we're learning together it's a process it's a journey but definitely here for it
0: certainly you you brought up the idea when we were just talking again about ideation, creative thinking, um, kind of how you go about developing those ideas and how that need statement is important to you. Mm-hmm. Are there any practices or measures you take to consciously get your mind in the state of creative thinking and ideation? Um, you know, I, I some people, it certainly differs. Some people have their set times or they're kind of like they plan on thinking creatively and they kind of schedule an approach in order to do that. And then other people, it just, it just happens, uh, you know, throughout the day and they're just writing down notes, you know, or trying to not to forget the brilliant idea that they might've had, or at least they think is brilliant. Um, Are are there any measures you take yourself, Mason, regarding that?
1: I would say, so I did, I did science fair in high school uh, for about three years or so. And in that it was crucial to have ideas continually, you know, it's the same case in entrepreneurship. So I'd stay, I, got started thinking in that mindset very young, but I think I had that before high school in terms of just being curious. Um, As for what my mindset is and what my process is for creative thinking and innovation mindset, I would say I definitely don't have a scheduled time where I think or I can get in the zone for creative thought. That's never been me um, in terms of like this, this ritualistic behavior to promote that. I would say for me, it's always just asking questions of why and most importantly, asking focused questions. Um, So, yeah, at its most simplest example, you take a walk down a street, busy street and ask why. Look around, look at structures, look at things moving on around you and ask why they're there and continue asking why. I think that's a very common um, problem solving or ideation trick. Another thing I do very consciously is actually read the news. I think that's really important. And read the news in what interests you. So I think for me, every day I I look at my kind of it's it's on Google News. That's my main news platform, it's the aggregate service. There's a for you page, so I always take a scroll through that. Um, and I'm also interested, you know, primarily in the sustainability and technology industries. So I always make sure to take a look at the the new the technology section and then the environmental section. And when I did science fair, all my projects were all environmental related. Something I told the members of that club was. The key to my success really was just reading that every single day, finding some really unique problem that was like, where did that come up? Diving into that, because you know, if it's on the news, it's probably new. There's not a whole lot of research into it. And then taking everything for its worth from that problem and really diving into it. I think something that, you know, I think when we connected, you know, I learned about your your work with uh, Circular Sands, right? Yep, yep. So I mean that that's contingent on the sand shortage. That's something I learned about on the environmental panel on Google News, like in it was my sophomore year of high school. I saw it, I was like, what the heck? Like that just seems so off. Um, saw that as a new story, read a whole lot into it, how it's affecting a concrete shortage. And, you know, I'd say I did a, a concrete project from that. But yeah, it's thinking deeply about what's going on in the world and continuing to ask why. That's at its simplest level, what works for me, but I know everyone's different.
0: You've brought up this reoccurring theme, kind of that sustainability Mm -hmm. aspect. Has that always been something I know you mentioned like in high school years, it was clearly too, but has that always been something that's been, um, at the forefront of your thought regarding innovation and engineering and, and kind of technological advancement? Have you always wanted to be an engineer? And if so, had you always wanted to be kind of a, an engineer working in the sustainability field of some sort as well?
1: Yeah, I would say I've actually thought about this question, I think, more deeply in the past few years. And I would say in high school and middle school and kind of early on in my education and life, sustainability was a very guiding principle. And it still is a very guiding principle with what I do, what I am interested in, Um for a couple of reasons, you know, I, I grew up in in Boy Scouts, loving nature, loving camping, loving the outdoors. It was kind of just this natural interest. Um, another thing, kind of an underrated thing is like just Pixar movies always got to me, like WALL-E. That, in my opinion, as far as I can think, that's the number one thing that sparked my interest in like sustained that movie. movie. I was talking to this with my mom, actually, because it's like one of my favorite movies. It's like, I don't know. I thought it was pretty good. Um And that that really triggered something in me, I think, subconsciously that I carried with until high school when I realized, okay, well, yeah, I have this interest in nature and sustainability, but what can I actually do with it in terms of applications? And I say that's when it turned to like, okay, well, this is engineering. This is making things. This is making things better and improving things. And this is thinking. So the engineering mindset didn't really come about until high school or at least get solidified until I was in high school. And then in terms of being a guiding interest now, you know, sustainable practice has always been something that's guided me. I think it's really important. I think general sentiment, especially now among everybody, is that it's important. Sustainability is an important thing to implement in companies, businesses. ESG is becoming huge in recent years, especially that e-component. So that's something that motivated me. But I'd also say it's not the sole guiding factor. Um, I mean, I think we can get into this maybe later, but I'd say my interests vary. Sustainability is one of them, uh, but I think there's other areas that are very important uh, to address industries I want to get involved in. So yeah, it's not the number one thing I want to impact or get involved with, but it's definitely spurred a lot in terms of impact orientedness.
0: Certainly. And, I, and part of the reason I frame it that way is, of course, we met at a competition that was focused on kind of the sustainability aspect. So uh, it, that obviously played a role in my my thought process there. Thinking about the thought process and, and the conscious thought in general here. Um, well, actually, not in general. More specifically, how how much do you think entrepreneurship, which you clearly have at least some sort of interest in, considering that you know you're working on this business startup and engineering? How how many do you think they're pretty parallel as far as you know being centered around problem solving? um certainly one's more related to business and one's more purely related to the creativity and the invention side of things um how similar do you think those two fields of discipline are and do you think they play well together at least in your experience
1: i think engineers overhype themselves engineering's not an overrated thing but i feel like a lot of people place problem solving in engineering at a parallel and I don't think that's important. I don't think that's a good culture to have because that in my opinion creates this idea that only engineers can create things and I don't think that's a healthy mindset to have especially in entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship at its most fundamental level is correlated to innovation. And once again, we tend to tend to put innovation and engineering side by side. I don't think it is. You know, when I go to conferences like Fowler, you meet Mostly people who aren't engineers who can create businesses that don't relate to engineering in the slightest, but they're all creating something new. They're all at the end of the day solving a problem. So when I think of engineering, I guess, yeah, you know we think of solving problems and how that might relate, but I don't think that's the very framework. Engineers are going to solve problems in the way that economists are not, um, and I'd say that's the value in in kind of thinking inter with an interdisciplinary mindset. Because we get all these different perspectives, so I say in entrepreneurship it's crucial to have every sort of thinker that's involved, um, whether that's an engineer or whether that's a pure environmentalist, whatever it may be. Different backgrounds are important. Diversity grounds innovation, and yeah, so I don't I don't think they go hand in hand at all. Like I said, I think it's personally overhyped, and that's that's coming from an engineer. So that's that's my insight on it. <laughs>
0: You mentioned having that kind of interdisciplinary knowledge base. Um, Quick sort of tangent here. You are a minor in finance. You brought up the fact uh, pre-recording that you chose that minor, not necessarily due to a maybe like overwhelming interest in the field of finance, but more so to have that kind of interdisciplinary background and and that knowledge base in another category that bodes well with entrepreneurship obviously knowing the financial aspect of whatever you're creating is extremely important in actually taking that thing from the ideation or the conceptual stage to reality um can you speak on the the importance kind of of that and and why you when you recognized that was important and, and kind of why
1: yeah um I'd say finance has always been interesting. Uh, I'm at a school that kind of specializes in finance. It's not an engineering school. So I knew that it was important to take advantage of any opportunity I had. So I'd say that was definitely a guiding aspect. I also find the career, you know, I think it's pretty interesting. The idea of finance related industries, investment banking is a very hot job right now. And in terms of like impact orientedness, you know, banking's where it is where it's at in terms of like facilitating major transactions and making huge impacts in terms of what value that holds, especially in relation to engineering or entrepreneurship. I think that boils down to, you know, a few things. One thing I've always heard is that innovation is not driven by good ideas. It's driven by good people. And I would say the principle kind of goes hand in hand with diversity of thought, engineering and finance. You can think all you want. You can come up with all the problems or all the, sorry, all the solutions you want to an idea. You can have all the creativity in the world and the limited amount of it. But if you don't have the financial background to say, well, this will financially work or it won't, you're not going to get anywhere. Um, And whether that's the solo entrepreneur that has that information or it's a team, it's important to have that at least somewhere. If you want to get any work done, I'd say, You know, something in my experience, whether that be with like a past internship or just knowledge of engineering companies, is that a lot of engineers just don't know finance or don't know what projects are simply just not feasible because they cost too much. So having that framework in mind is going to be really important for any venture, um, whether that's one person, two people or a whole team. So, again, diversity of thoughts, very important. Diversity of experiences, even more important. So.
0: I'm going to throw another thought provoking question at you, Mason. Um, do you think that having a base <laughs> let me rephrase this do you think that not having a baseline understanding maybe of that the financial realm is something that's actually a benefit to engineers at times because it allows them to think so creatively and outside the box and and outside the realm of you know financial bounds? that they're able to come up with ideas that maybe originally aren't financially feasible, but then can be tweaked and eventually are made to, to be. So, um, that's kind of an interesting thing that I just thought of when you brought up that, that concept, you know, not having the kind of limiting financial barrier belief and being able to, and certainly not that you can't do that, even if you have the financial understanding, that's obviously they don't, they aren't completely mutually exclusive, but. Just kind of the idea of thinking outside of the box, outside of the realm of 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 whether of what's even possible currently financially speaking,
1: yeah, I would say it's certainly a filter of some sort, and that's common in the ideation process in general. Is that when you start first start thinking of ideas, whether that's f- for entrepreneurs primarily or whenever you're doing a new project, is you throw out as or you throw in as many ideas as possible that have no limits. So, cost should not be a limit you know, nothing should be a limit. Um, and then you slowly evaluate and throw out ideas until you get to one or two and then, then it's a tougher decision. So yeah, I, I definitely agree with you in engineering. It's, you got to think of whatever can possibly work. Naturally, there's going to be filters, you know, just due to natural laws. Um, and then, then the financial barriers are come in and knock out what 70% of the ideas, but, um, yeah, I would say it it really is just one, one giant filter of ideas.
0: I like the way you kind of phrased that as far as decision-making goes in entrepreneurship, right. Of originally just not having any filters, just anything goes, and then you can slowly filter it down, whether it's, you know, currently feasible, technologically, technological wise, whatever I'm trying to say Um, financially wise, you know, all, all those sort of things. I like the way you laid that out with kind of the filtering process going forward. I know it's, it's, it's probably commonplace and we do it, you know, instinctually when we're thinking and and narrowing down ideas, but kind of being able to um, formulate how that process is actually happening, I think is important as well. Um, Mason, moving on a little bit from the idea of the, the financial aspect here, that was kind of a tangent. I wanted to discuss collaboration and partnership. Can you, do you have a story? Do you have a past instance, perhaps, where this collaboration and partnership has been extremely pivotal? I'm assuming it has something to do with your current co-founder, perhaps, um, but maybe not. Kind of share us uh, share your thoughts on that as, as well here.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I mentioned you can have all the ideas in the world, but if you don't have the people to capitalize upon them, you're not going to get nowhere. Um, partnerships are important to get ideas to where you want them to be as the individual. Um, in terms of me, I would say if we're just thinking of gray green, yeah, having a co-founder is absolutely crucial. And I think that was a major factor to gray Green's success and where it's at today. So I'd say, yeah, the idea of a co-founder and the idea of having a support system, whether that's a team or mentor, whatever it is, that is crucial. I'd say in terms of us that, did happen to be our university, which is Duke, and taking advantage of any resources that university or academia has or might be able to provide to you. Um, I'd say there's a there's a bigger culture nowadays in terms of schools having an entrepreneurial sector or culture or focus because schools are realizing how important entrepreneurship is. Say that you know came from probably Stanford but it, it, it's, it has stemmed and it's skyrocketed in the past few years at campuses. So I'd say for us, the biggest partnership or collaboration is actually with a group called Duke Ignite. It's a program at the university, not necessarily focusing on the university. It's kind of this global organization, but it encourages youth-based projects to address sustainability challenges, specifically relating to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals or SDGs. So the program um, right now, in terms, it has a couple of sectors for high schoolers. It would allow high schoolers from all over the world to get trained by a Duke undergraduate student to complete a project of their choice that addresses a sustainable development challenge. So they would work over the course of the semester with that trainer and kind of get their project up and running. Um, In terms of how that related to me, I didn't, we didn't take that route with Gray Green, but We did get very closely connected with the founders and leaders of the program, Dr. Megan Madonna, and Kimberly Breen, who doesn't work at Duke anymore. I believe she's involved with the USPTO. But uh, we reached out to them, uh, got a lot of insight from them in terms of how our project could actually fit into their organization. And from there, once we were kind of working closely with them, we got a framework down For actual Ignite and the Makers program, which is kind of this high school program, they could use our project as an example for projects down the line and currently involved with the the program there uh, with another role. Um, And then just getting connected with your university. Uh, Another example, Duke Innovation Entrepreneurship Department is, I would say, just getting started in terms of what it can do from a university standpoint, um, making continual investments. and. The entrepreneurial culture at the school. That's how I learned about Fowler, uh, the Fowler Social Global Innovation Challenge, which is where we met. And, you know, entering projects and hackathons or pitch competitions is crucial. So I'd say really forming a partnership with your university or with um, whatever local organization you might have access to is crucial because having the support of where you belong is gonna help you succeed so yeah for me it it was it was
0: duke putting yourself in that mentorship role for say a a high school entrepreneur that was participating in that program there at duke what's some advice what do you think is maybe what do you think are the most essential qualities um, skills that an entrepreneur could possess going forward and maybe the the right mindset uh that they should have with it?
1: Yeah. Um, I guess being in the mentorship role, my involvement with the program now, I'm the the kind of founder of this entrepreneurial sector. So traditionally, it was kind of just this pure engineering or development side where people would get, or students, high school students, would get paired with an undergraduate and do a project over the course of a semester or two semesters, and then they would present it at the end. And traditionally, kind of like high school science fairs, the amazing ideas and amazing projects that would go through the program would just be kind of done or ripped apart. And then a new project would be started the next year. And when I looked at that, I said, well, I mean, I've been in that situation before with science fair, and I know how it is to have an idea just thrown out when you really believe it in from the beginning. So I said, well, how can we take projects and actually make them last? That's why I founded the entrepreneurial sector for Duke Ignite, where we're giving high school students the foundation to learn principles of business and entrepreneurship and take their project to the next level. I know that was a long tangent, but I'd say that kind of goes hand in hand with what advice I can give. An interdisciplinary mindset, as I mentioned to you, in my opinion, is the most important framework to have as an entrepreneur, as a thinker. You can't just think in the scope of engineering. You can't just think in the scope of finance or art or environmental science. You can't do it if you want to have an idea that transcends across all industries and all fields of life because life is interdisciplinary. Um, That goes hand in hand with creative thought, getting in that creative zone, however you want to do it, whether that's reading, listening to music, doesn't matter. Creative thinking in an interdisciplinary way is the most important And I'd say that will stem everything else. From there, if you have the ability to ask meaningful questions, um, but more importantly, like I said, focused questions. Guiding questions are important. They drive innovation, they drive your thought. It's this giant filter of ideas. And then of course, it's just the ability to work with people, um, forming meaningful meaningful partnerships, whether that's with one person, two people, an entire university, it doesn't matter, your community. those are the most important things. And those are something that I think um, Duke Ignite and the the entrepreneurs program is what I'm, what I'm trying to develop right now is I think we're doing a pretty good job with that in terms of attacking those principles from, from every, every angle. So, yeah.
0: Switching gears from building that program to Mm -hmm. building a brand. Now let's talk about brand identity. That's another topic we wanted to cover here. Do you have advice or just want to speak some thoughts on how to develop and build a strong brand identity um, that really connects with people for whatever business, whatever field the the brand may be in, in order to get them kind of behind it and associated with the brand? And I want to um, start this really quick with, I had this conversation with Richard on episode 12, I believe that was, and we discussed how it seems like there's been more and more of a shift in recent years to this doesn't mean the products are bad, but to a little bit less of like developing better and better products. And it seems like lately it's more about developing a better and better brand that really connects with the people. Um, I feel like and I could be totally wrong. It's just kind of my perspective on it. It seems like in the maybe in the past, it was always just purely about the product itself. And if I if I can just make the X's and O's better than the competitor at a cheaper price, you know, we'll beat them, right? It's just a numbers game. And now it seems like it's becoming not necessarily for better or for worse, but just more of a brand um, emotional, like if you can grip the consumer and and give them a personal connection to your brand they'll be willing to pay a premium potentially for for a similar product or or maybe sometimes even an inferior product. Uh, once again, I'm not speaking on whether it's good or bad, but I do feel like there has been more and more of a shift or at least a noticeable shift. Maybe it was just more discreet in the past. Um, and I don't know if social media has something to do with that, you know, brands being able to enact interact, excuse me, on a much more personal level with their consumers. Um, that certainly could be part of it, but what are your, kind of your thoughts on building a brand and building that identity as a whole?
1: Yeah, I would, I would say I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, and to your point, social media is spot on with affecting that transition. I guess I think of you know way back when none of us were around, but you know we think of individual products, not necessarily a brand identity. We think of individual inventions, not Apple. Apple's a good example. Like you said, whether or not they make great products year to year, um, you know, I, I think they're one of the most innovative companies. I don't, I don't, that's not a lie there. Um, I would say that's, that's something they embrace. That's a culture they've created, but they also have a great brand because they have the ability to connect through, to connect with people um, through social media, through their stores and through their brand identity. So I would agree. Absolutely. You know, it's shifted from products to the idea of a brand. And like you said, I don't think that's deteriorated the quality of products at all in the slightest. But I would say it's also important to build a brand from the person and from their ability to connect with other people. If you have a founder that can connect with others, that's the most important. But even more important to the success of a product or the success of a brand is a person's level of commitment. In connection to the product that they created. When we think of, you know, I, I mean you know, a common thing is to think of when when you want to create a business, well, what problems have you faced? If you have a business where someone is meaningfully connected to the product that they're creating, it's going to inherently be better. Me with Grey Green, I'm interested in sustainability, I'm interested in agriculture. Josie's grandparents grew up or she's South African, her grandparents grew up there, Her parents grew up there. So she knows what it's like, she knows the situation with the water situation there. And that was able to guide our development of the product and um, guide our process in terms of how committed we were. If you're not invested in your idea, or your brand, you're not going to succeed. So in terms of brand identity, I mean, I totally agree, take advantage of all mediums you can social media, obviously a good logo, marketing tactics is all important. But at its heart is the connection that the founder has to the company. And I'd say that's kind of an underrated aspect that doesn't get appreciated as much as it should be.
0: It's certainly not something that I had thought of a ton. Actually, prior to, I had a conversation on episode 11 with Callie Meyer. um, And we were talking kind of from the lens of marketing, but what she was talking about was Something that seemed that she found to be extremely effective was her um, bosses at the time. He was the episode number three, Matthew Tezvich. He founded Oxox and his connection with the company and how he was able, which is like you mentioned, but how he was able to portray that to judges, to potential investors through stories and storytelling in marketing and, and giving them that that connection that you're exactly what you're saying through marketing, not only having it, but being able to portray it well to others because she thought in her opinion, and I thought it was very interesting. She thought it was definitely a benefit kind of from the judge's perspective, you know, or down the road, potentially even equity investors perspective, right? Looking at someone who clearly has a very personal relationship to the problem itself. And you could look at that and think maybe it's a, you know, um, a, a con in that They'll, they'll maybe be more narrow sighted when it comes to the vision, you know, and and less able to pivot potentially down the road, but it also gets to the heart of it, which is kind of that underlying passion, that underlying belief in really in what you're doing and also why you're doing it that I think connects so well, kind of that, that brand identity aspect. And then it ties together with marketing and, and the storytelling and being able to really portray that across. Would you, would you agree with those kind of statements as well, Mason? I would definitely
1: agree uh, with you, and when you look at private equity, growth equity, I think one of the main things that companies look for you know above a product or idea is the person is the entrepreneur entrepreneur and the actual business. If the connection isn't there, it's not going to work, especially if they're solo or a duo. If you know they're not committed, if you know they don't have a personal backing or personal investment to the product low success rate, right? I think that's one of the common tips in entrepreneurship in the ideation process is go with what's meaningful to you because it's going to make it more enjoyable. Um, So yeah, I totally agree.
0: Flipping gears all the way back to the beginning, we talked about some of your interests, not only being sustainability and engineering, but kind of technology as well. AI is the, you know, the cutting edge, oops, I think is the cutting edge kind of technological advancement of our time, at least right now. Um, you can't go anywhere without seeing something about it, hearing something about it. What are your thoughts on AI automation, right, within the workspace, within entrepreneurship and how it's going to affect, or maybe has already begun to affect, entrepreneurs and their ventures going forward?
1: AI is everywhere. Uh, it's not going away. I think that's uh, something we've been told and something we're going to firmly believe in the next few years. Um, in terms of how that's going to enter the entrepreneurial space, at a very fundamental level, it's going to speed up ideation. Uh, for myself, I'm working on a project right now. Um can tap into it, but it's using active noise cancellation to reduce sound on drones or cargo ships to make them quieter for the sake of the environment. Um and for me, if I want to harness that idea and really tap into it, it was an original idea, but if I want to grow it, I plug it into ChatGPT as a lot of people come to do these days. I could bounce back and get insights and different questions or potential points of ambiguity solved or at least ironed out uh, with artificial intelligence. I would say another way it's going to change. So it's going to change the ideation process. That's a fact. We're going to have a lot more ideas. Um, that's good. Definitely a good thing in terms of quantity. But I'd say in terms of quality, it's also going to elevate the quality of entrepreneurs themselves. And I think that's going to start at its most fundamental level, fundamental level in education. Um I believe in the power of an education, and I think it's important to at least have some sort of growth and knowledge-oriented factor in your life. And I think AI is going to enter that in the following ways. Artificial intelligence, especially right now, one way we can see is it provides this kind of mentorship role, this idea of a one-on-one tutor and self-development provoker um if we can if we can call it that this idea that you can have some sort of mentor in your life that's not necessarily a person who clearly can't dedicate all that time like you know a family can't do that they can't be with you 100% of the time but if we have something like chat gpt in our pockets or something even better which will come out very soon we're going to have that opportunity and how that's going to work as i see it is from a self-development phase um one thing in education is that i think it's like the the two sigma question or two sigma hypothesis is the fact that when you have one-on-one mentorship right now, as we know it as a personal tutor, your test scores and average performance in a class will improve by two standard deviations. And that's been tested, verified. I don't know if it was Oxford. That did, I don't know who it was, but it's the two sigma something. Um, so your, your your improvement will will increase by two standard deviations. I think that's going to transcend, yes, in education, but also in the quality of the entrepreneur. We think of their ability to think of questions. I think in one way or another, that's going to improve by two standard deviations. Having a mentor that can guide your thought process, not just answer questions, but encourage you to think, oh, are you thinking of this question the right way? Or you know, how about you think about this? Or how about you research this a little bit more? It's going to increase our ability to think. So I'm not very cynical in terms of that. AI is going to make us less smart. Um, I'd say that's a fear. It's a valid one. How that's going to play out, you know, it's a polarizing fact. Maybe it will make us lazier. Maybe I'm sitting here in 30 years. We're not going to know what to do with ourselves. But I think it is going to increase the quality of the person for those that want that. And then attacking that with another front with an increased number of ideas, I think the entrepreneurial landscape is going to skyrocket. Automated startups. I think that's something we're already seeing. The ability that you can just, or the the idea that you can just have an AI design a product for you and then autonomously 3D print that product and then sell it on, oh, I don't know, Etsy. There's a business right there. And all you had to do was input a few lines into ChatGPT. So automation, it's going to be there front. Quality of ideas, definitely going to be there. I think the quality of the people, quality of thoughts, going to increase. And then, of course, number of ideas is going to increase. So I would say entrepreneurial culture is definitely an, going to to skyrocket with artificial intelligence.
0: I would agree, I think, with all of those points. The biggest thing I see AI in, um, it's kind of a thought I've had recently, isn't it just the increased efficiency, obviously, mm-hmm. um, within businesses? You brought it up within education when you mentioned the, you know, the two sigma rule. or or whatever exactly that was called, um, with kind of that one-on-one mentor, the the study being done on that and then how they improve in that regard. What I think is interesting, kind of a thought experiment that I went through recently was going back the history of humans and communication, right? Think back to even before language when it was just either, either verbal, um, you know, whether you could hear them motioning, see them motioning a direction or hear them making some sort of noise that would indicate either danger or safety or food or something like that, right? That was how they, the communication traveled throughout space by either sight, you know, or, or hearing them and then also time. But in that case, it couldn't really travel through time that well. It was just in an instant, right? Everything was live instantaneous. There was no recorded video that would transcend time in that regard um then we moved on to language right oral language and 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 whether it was motions of communication and and then you're kind of able to move on to then written language which would then be able to transcend not only space by being able to send a letter for example but also time because it was written down and then you could have that message stand still throughout time as opposed to speaking a word and now you don't get that word back it's gone right then we move on to, you know, things like Morse code um, radio, right? So now that expands the space element to a, to a large degree. You can reach any corner of the globe at this point, um, but it's still kind of live. And the, the time aspect is short, right? And then we move on to video. It improves kind of the quality of everything and eventually the ability to record. Now it can transcend like the internet, being able to store it in the cloud, that sort of thing. Now it can transcend. Still, all the space you can think of, right? We can transmit messages to essentially anywhere on Earth and time. We can have them recorded. And I think it's interesting talking about um, the old question of like, how is the computer's memory going to be? How is AI going to have a good memory? Well, it, it can take a picture and remember that exact image forever without it changing. So its memory is essentially perfect in that regard, right? Now we get into being able to change it and edit it and all that. But that's besides the point. So that's where we're at now. So what I was thinking about was how is AI going to transcend and innovate the next medium of space or time? Or if it's something else we don't even, you know, if it's another dimension we don't even have yet, well, we can't really get into that. But as far as space and time goes, I'm like, well, if AI, the large language language models that are eventually, you know, getting larger and larger and, and receiving more and more data and inputs in order to get more accurate outputs. Um, I mean, because that's really at a root sense is what it is, right? If we're able to do that and analyze the individual people better and better and better and better, which is what they're already doing in business and marketing and and essentially every area of the human experience, if we're able to get that down better, we'll eventually have AI, you know, personal assistants, right? That are able to make decisions, answer questions, um, hold conversations, in almost the exact same manner or maybe the exact same manner based on the input data that the human, that it's the assistant of would actually do. So then I was like, well, think of CEOs, if they could have a second them that, okay, this person can go to meetings and, 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 you know, basic things like that to start, right. Eventually you'd get into more creative and innovative thinking. But to start, if, if I can have a second person go to a meeting for me, or, you know, do visit this person or um, get feedback or listen to this recording, you know, something like that. I mean, that just doubles productivity right there, right? And if you could, if you can have one, why is there a limit to a third or a fourth? And then eventually, this is where it gets interesting is eventually if you get into having that ability to where you can have your AI attend the meeting and not actually meet with them person to person, what if it gets to the point eventually where that other person, is actually happy that it's your AI because they're able to have a better interaction and a better conversation with the AI, as opposed to the getting rid of the human element entirely. And then you take it one step further. And what if your AI is simply having a conversation with the other person's AI? And I I think of this, it's it's a total tangent here on automation, but I'm curious your thoughts on any of that and, and maybe similar, uh, utopian or dystopian views going forward as far as AI goes.
1: Yeah, I you know I think we can hypothesize all we want, uh, and it's fun. About, oh, it's a very fun thing to do. I agree. Um, at its most simplest level, though, I would say AI. And to your point, you know, at the end of the day, it's it could be a virtual replication of of human consciousness and humans. Um, and humans, quite honestly, are a framework for everything. I think it's it's the same thing as infrastructure. I mean, what are roads without cars to use them? Uh, what are humans without the environment to nurture them? So it's going to be the same thing of of what we can actually make of it all. Yes. Okay, great. We have another human, but I mean, I can, we can duplicate, you know, 8 billion people and will our productivity really increase by two? Probably not. Um, so I would say it's it's what we can do in supplement to artificial intelligence it's a great framework um but unless we have i mean other buzzwords quantum computing you know advanced uh computing hardware i we're not going to get anywhere well we'll get somewhere but we're not going to get to the the levels that i think we can only dream of so it's what we can use it for and what we can use in supplement to that's going to make or break the technology in my opinion so, yeah, I mean it's it's a thought experiment for sure. We can we can hypothesize all day, but um I'd say it's more important to ask well what else apart from AI. So
0: Yeah. Yeah, certainly. I think that's a excellent framework to have, right? If it's going to be something that's, you know, like you mentioned, you can hypothesize all day, but if it's something that is, you know, A we don't know for sure and then B if it's if it's inevitable in some way shape or form, you have to figure out how okay, how are we going to go about day-to-day? What else can we do besides it if it is an ine- inevitable um you know giant that's that's that awaits so I think it's uh interesting for sure and Mason, what are flipping gears here? what are some uh more personal goals aspirations that you have outside of just you know tech the technological space just in general, whether it's within entrepreneurship engineering or just life as a whole
1: yeah um life is short. Uh, There's a, there's a lot of things I want to do. You know, a lot of them are professional related. Uh, A lot of them are family related or just personal goals. I would say something I've taken inspiration from is not necessarily setting individual goals, but setting broad enough goals that you know, or can do things in your life that can guarantee you at least touch them. Um, I'd say The person that kind of inspired that is Elon Musk, as controversial as a person as he is. Um, I think we can learn a lot from him. And one of the things that I know he did when he was younger was make a list of like three or four goals or areas he thought were important and therefore wanted to impact. One of them being the Internet, uh, renewable energy, and then I think space travel or space colonization. Uh, for me, from a young age, I took very similar inspiration, kind of writing down and thinking about three areas that I knew I wanted to impact or at least get involved with in some space. And those areas have changed as I've gotten older and learned about more technologies and more spaces. But um, fundamentally, I'd say, I mean, one of them's um the renewable energy industry. I just did an internship at Duke Energy this past summer, which is a utility in the East Coast, North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, and then not the East Coast, but Ohio and Kentucky. Um, so energy transition is crucial, similar to what Elon Musk thinks. I think we're seeing that every day. Uh, the other area is education, as I mentioned. Things like artificial intelligence and its application to education, the ability to produce a new sort of thinker is revolutionary in terms of what's that, what that's going to do to humanity. I think we're already seeing. Well, we already know what education can do for a person and what it can do for a country and a species. So, having a new wave of education is important. And something that's I want to impact uh, other areas: ocean exploration. That's something I've always thought is just cool. Um, you know, the idea that ninety percent of the ocean is unexplored has always been a mystifying fact for me. Um, I also say, I think it has a lot of potential for human uh, capacity in terms of, in my opinion, just medicine. Um, I think, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's a little over a quarter of our current modern medicine has come from the Amazon rainforest. Uh, When we think of the ocean, where there's probably only less than 20 nameable drugs that have come from, like coral reefs, for example. So in terms of just what's out there and just from an exploration standpoint, we have a whole lot to go. Um, I haven't really looked to space that much in terms of my main interest. It's interesting because it's new, but in terms of feasibility, eh, I don't know, the ocean's a little bit more. So those are areas I want to impact and places I want to get involved. But yeah, goal-orientedness is important.
0: You mentioned kind of the idea of having those broader goals, um, Mm -hmm. and, and so that you're able to impact them in some form or another, even if you don't make it on a specific goal uh, quest, are there any specific goals, however, that you, that you have, um, outside of those kind of three categories of impact?
1: Yeah, I, I definitely, I don't know, specific goals. I've, it's not that I've shied away from them. Um, And they're kind of, it's like, oh, don't tell people your goals. I quite honestly can't think of any individually specific ones. I can think of areas I want to impact, places I want to get involved, things I want to do in a very broad scope. But in terms of individual goals, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I want to have an impact at the end of the day. I think every goal that I might have relates to that. Making the world a better place, having more formative relations with people is something that's important uh to me in terms of just living a fulfilled life. So yeah, I would say they all they all go around some field of just personal wellness, mental health, physical health, just general well-being and uh
0: impact. I think that's interesting. It's kind of a brush of fresh breath of fresh air there in terms of the idea of not being so focused on the specific goals and more on the broad ones. I think it's a it's certainly a unique perspective that I uh I find interesting and I applaud you for uh, sticking to, even though the the smart goals might tell you they need to be specific right off the bat. But uh, Mason, that was a super interesting conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I had a good time. And uh, hopefully you can be a guest down the road sometime uh, again, and I am wishing you the best in all your future endeavors. So thanks again.
1: Appreciate it. Had a great, great podcast, great conversation. Thank you for having me.